There is order to the monumental grandeur of the universe, like the stately constancy of gravity, and there is stupendous violence, like the crash between black holes. Albert Einstein, a hundred years past, argued that something called gravitational waves existed too, waves which ripple like must-up bedsheets across space-time, but he believed we would never have the means to prove it. Well, guess what? Two black holes collided in deep space and humans were finally able to record gravitational waves from it. In the way that it takes light from the sun eight minutes and change to reach the Earth, it took more than a billion years for the ripples from that ancient smash-up to reach the instruments of LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. The proof of these invisible waves zipping through space at the speed of light, elbowing and distorting anything in their path, is a revolution in astrophysics. The work earned the Nobel Prize in Physics for three men leading LIGO, Rainer Weiss of MIT and Caltech's Barry Barish and Kip Thorne. By the numbers, it was a billion-dollar enterprise, 40 years in the making, with more than 1,000 researchers from 20 countries and a half-century quest by Thorne, all of which goes to show you that you cannot put a stopwatch on science. You've had two phenomenal moments in the last couple of years. September of 2015, your observations had been confirmed with the data. It's being called the breakthrough of the century. Scientists confirmed Thursday gravitational waves exist. Albert Einstein first explained them in his general theory of relativity a century ago. And then October 2017, they called and said, Guess what? You got the Nobel Prize. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has decided to award the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics with one half to Rainer Weiss and the other half jointly to Barry C. Barish and Kip S. Thorne for decisive contributions to the LIGO detector and the observation of gravitational waves. Tell us about those two moments. Well, I have to say that the first moment was much more significant to me than the, than the second. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the discovery. Uh, so I had worked, actually, toward this for a half a century. So for me, it was a half-century quest. A colleague sent me to uh, look at an internal website of our LIGO collaboration, and I saw the data that had just come in. Uh, I was uh, just amazed at the beauty of the signal that we had that was seen. It was so beautiful that it, uh, it seemed like maybe it wasn't real. But after very thorough checking everything that could have gone wrong, it became clear it truly was real. For me, it was just a sense of profound satisfaction that uh, I had chosen to try to push this uh, decades earlier. Interestingly, uh, my uh, collaborator and also co-winner of the the prize, Ray Weiss, his reaction was uh, enormous relief. Like my wife, he was subject to Jewish guilt, and uh, he felt it was carrying out a load of guilt that uh, we had convinced uh, the National Science Foundation to spend a billion dollars of taxpayer money, and we hadn't seen anything yet. Uh, under the leadership of the third winner of the prize, Barry Barish, who really transformed what Ray and I and Ron Drever began with, transformed it into the successful project that put and built the huge team 
that was required for success. So the call from the Nobel Prize Committee was an afterthought? The call came at 2.15 in the morning. I was sound asleep. And uh, But the first thing I said to the person on the other end was a member of the physics committee that made the decision to uh, award the prize uh, to us for gravity waves. And the first thing I said to him was that I was quite disappointed because I believe strongly that this prize should go to the entire uh, LIGO team and uh, it should not be going to three individuals. And the member of the committee that I spoke with said, well, we've been talking about uh, this kind of change of, of how we do things, and uh, but we have not made the change. I'd be happy to discuss it with you in, in Stockholm. I still feel a, a large amount of embarrassment over this prize because it really belongs to the whole team. You started this work 50 years ago. Pretty much, I would think, on the strength of Einstein's predictions that you would find these kinds of ripples. And now that it's been verified, what does this mean for science? A key point in my mind, and this was what motivated me to put the enormous effort that I did into this, the laws of physics tell us that there are only two kinds of waves that can travel across the universe, bringing us information about what's far away, electromagnetic waves and gravitational waves. Electromagnetic waves, of course, include light, radio waves, x-rays, gamma rays, infrared radiation, ultraviolet radiation, microwaves, they're all electromagnetic. They all just consist of electric fields and magnetic fields that oscillate. Uh, and it was Galileo 400 years ago that uh, opened the uh, up electromagnetic astronomy by building the first optical telescope pointing at the, the sky. What we set out to do was what Galileo had done but for this second kind of wave, gravitational waves. And gravitational waves are uh, ripples in the shape of space. They stretch and squeeze space uh, and everything that lives in space. So that's radically different from electromagnetic waves. And just as electromagnetic astronomy over these last 400 years since Galileo has brought us enormous surprises and enormously rich understanding of the universe around us, over the next 400 years, I expect gravitational waves to do the same, but to show us aspects of the universe that we could never learn about with electromagnetic waves. And this has already begun to happen with colliding black holes. We had expected that, that black holes would collide. We had expected that the black, when black holes collide, they would create a veritable storm in the shape of space and time. But uh, we hadn't known that for sure. And we hadn't known how many pairs of black holes there were out there. We hadn't known uh, how big they were. Uh, and so what LIGO has done is it has seen then colliding black holes for the first time. It has seen uh, through its observations the storm and the uh, fabric in the, in the shape of space and time that's created by those collisions. Uh, where those heavy black holes come from, we're not sure. Through further observations, we'll pin that down. In this collision, the first one that was observed by LIGO, uh, the amount of energy that came off in gravitational waves is the same as you would get by annihilating three suns and turning all of the energy from annihilating them into gravitational waves. That's, and that happened so quickly that the power output, the amount of energy that came off in a very short period of time, 
uh, it was 50 times bigger than the power output from all of the stars in the universe put together during that approximately one-tenth of a second that the collision lasted. So it was a brief collision, but, uh, but the, the most powerful thing that humans have ever observed, uh, except uh, for our indirect observation of the birth of the universe. My work on black holes began with a eureka moment a few days after the birth of my daughter, Lucy. While getting into bed, I realized that I could apply to black holes the causal structure theory I had developed for singularity theorems. You're such a good friend to Professor Stephen Hawking. It just occurred to me, he doesn't have a Nobel Prize. Did he send you a little bit of a, a message about this? <laughs> we are getting together to discuss this at, uh, at his home in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and I, did, I just had a message from him and that he is so looking forward to see me. Uh, do you think he's being a little sarcastic there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know he's looking forward to see me. Uh, uh, yeah, I suspect he's a little bit jealous. <laughs> we'll discuss it. Uh, we're doing a movie together, too, that, that is enormous fun. So we have a lot to talk about. You were the science advisor on the 2014 film Interstellar, which really broke new ground in visualizing some of these massive phenomena in deep space. I think the biggest thing that we did on Interstellar is the technical thing. We found that the standard techniques for uh, making visualizations based on computer simulations of, of astrophysical things. You cannot get highly accurate uh, movies of this using any techniques that anyone had ever uh, devised before. And so we devised new ways to do these visualizations that give you far better accuracy, uh, far, far better uh, resolution uh, in, on a big IMAX screen the biggest thing for me that came out of it. As, Aside from the enormous fun of, of working with Christopher Nolan and his crew and the fact that through this I was able to inspire huge numbers of people around the world about the beauties of science. CBS Television presents a special report on Sputnik 1. Soviet space satellite. Douglas Edwards reporting. Uh, Sixty years ago, the Soviets launched Sputnik. You're old enough to remember remember the shockwave that it sent across the United States and the interest yes. in science that it launched uh, across the country as we entered the space race. Can you tell me what you remember of it and of that era? I was a teenager growing up in Logan, Utah, and... Uh, I remember well the announcement of uh, Sputnik going out uh, and uh, looking up at the sky and uh, wondering about it. And I was already very, very uh, interested in science. I had decided already at age 13 that I would be, become a theoretical physicist. At age 8, I decided I'd be an astronomer, and so I combined the two. Uh, so for me, it was uh, an added inspiration, obviously, for society. It was a shock uh, to American society that uh, the Russians were first. Um, and uh, it uh, did spur uh, the race to go to the moon. Uh, and it did create an inspiration for large numbers of uh, kids like me 
to uh, pursue science and technology as careers. My perception is that that kind of urgency of science has has drifted away. There may be an indifference to science or even a hostility to science in some quarters. Yeah, that's also my impression in the United States. Of course, there are other parts of the world where science and technology are absolutely front and center. Let me give you a good example. In South Korea, I was invited to go there for something called the Seoul Digital Forum as a result of my work on Interstellar. And uh, the first speaker at this event was the president of Korea. The second speaker was the secretary general of the United Nations, and I was the third speaker. And this was televised throughout Korea. And it was part of the Korean government's effort to uh, mobilize the general population in terms of getting young people interested in science and technology. They viewed people as their only major natural resource or their biggest natural resource and inspiring children to become interested in science and technology, whether they were going to be scientists or not, uh, independently of that, to have an educated populace is a central goal. But I was amazed at when I saw it in, in Korea. And uh, we, yes, so we, we do have a problem in the United States today. Where did it drift to, that enthusiasm in the post-Sputnik era from the 1960s? Well, let me just say, I'm not an expert on this. There are other scientists who have thought more deeply about this. I do have some sense that part of the problem is the focus that is built into our economy through, uh, through tax laws uh, and uh, through uh, the way that businesses are run, the focus on short-term gain that uh, if a, a business invests and expects financial reward on time scale of several years, not time scales of, uh, of 10 years and longer. And science and technology just don't work that fast. Typically, great science and technology. Part of the problem is somehow cultural, that our cultural and, uh, and uh, political leaders pay less attention to science and technology than uh, they once did, and perhaps then they should. When Americans think of science, they almost think of it, as you said, like business transactional. What good is it? Okay, yeah. we, got, we got Tang out of the space program. So what are you going to give yes. us? No, precisely. I completely agree. That's perfectly valid. What do you get out of it that is of direct benefit to, to people now? But there is the other piece of it that when we look back on the era of the Renaissance and ask ourselves, what was it that uh, the legacy that our ancestors gave to us from that era is cultural. It's great science, great, great music, great art, great architecture, and the scientific method. 300 years when people look back at uh, our era and say, what did our ancestors give to us? I think it's going to be an understanding of the universe around us, an understanding of the laws of nature, and of how to use those laws of nature uh, in order to solve societal problems. Uh, It truly is an era where science and technology have enormous cultural impact and a cultural impact that will be far more appreciated 300 years ago than, uh, than it is today. 
What's next on your to-do list? You've been able to check off, okay, proved Einstein right. What's next? (laughs) (laughs) Proving Einstein right was not a biggie for me, but but opening up a whole new way to observe the universe Mm -hmm. was. And that's not my achievement. It's the (laughs) flag of team's achievement. But anyway, I'm 77. I have enormously enjoyed my career as a Caltech professor. We have the best students in the world, and uh, I think that their contributions to society uh, take us a whole far outweigh anything that I myself will do. That's my biggest contribution to the world is my students. And I decided uh, a few years ago that I wanted for the next phase of my uh, life to uh, pursue something else that I would thoroughly enjoy, but that could also have an impact on society. And so... Uh, my efforts now are going largely into the interface between science and the arts and using that interface to inspire uh, people about science. The uh, next film I'm doing, where I've co-opted the treatment with uh, Stephen Hawking and Linda Obst, uh, uh, is, is another example. I have a collaboration of the book with Leah Haller and a superb young painter that... Uh, who's on the faculty at Chapman, uh, and uh, it's her paintings and my poetry. And I, I figure uh, I've had enough success elsewhere. If I flop with poetry, well, okay. <laughs> and she is sufficiently successful, and she will survive it if, if my poetry drags her down. She's, I need four months of quiet time to hone the poetry, and uh, I'm not getting it because of this damn Nobel Prize. So... And people uh, like me. Yeah, that's right. So, no, I'm always happy to, to talk with you, Pat. Kip, thank you for your time. Congratulations on that damn Nobel Prize. <laughs> and thank you. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Tim French and Todd G. Levin and edited by Levin. The audio moments are from CBS News, from the film Interstellar, from the NBC series Star Trek, and from Euro News. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I am Pat Morrison. 